morning. Good morning. I have my mic on now, so we're good to go. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 46. Genesis chapter 46, and if you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible under the road chairs in front of you. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Genesis chapter 46 to 47. Our time together this morning. And then as Helena mentioned, uh, next week, Bill Jackson is coming to speak. And then the following week, Lord willing, uh, we'll conclude our sermon series on uh, Genesis. Uh, follow along with me as I read for us uh, Genesis 46, uh, beginning in verse 1. Uh, so Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamel. Sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yob, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sarad, Elon, and Jaliel. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shunai, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Arelai. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Izvi, Beriah, with Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Beriah, Heber, and Malchiel. These are the sons of Zilpah whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Eshbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Arb. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Gunai, Jazer, and Shilam. These are the sons of Bilhah, 
whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were sixty-six persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were seventy. May God bless the reading of his word thus far. Uh, so by way of context, uh, last week we saw that uh, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers and that he invited his father Jacob and all his family to come to Egypt to survive the famine that is going to plague the land for another five years. But when Jacob heard the news that Joseph was still alive, it nearly killed him. For 22 years, we must remember, he thought his favorite son was dead. But when Joseph's brothers told their father all the words of Joseph, and when uh, Jacob saw the wagons that Joseph had provided for their journey to Egypt, he said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now, it's easy for uh, those of us who know the rest of the story uh, to not think anything of this. But in reality, this would have been quite the undertaking. I mean, we're, we're talking about uprooting 70 persons, men, women, and children, as well as flocks and herds, and, and not to mention the fact that uh, Jacob and his family were leaving the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and even to uh, Jacob himself. When uh, Jacob's father Isaac wanted to escape a famine, by going down to Egypt, God stopped him along the way and said to him, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, that is the land of Canaan. And I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And so God said to Jacob's father, don't go down to Egypt. But what does Jacob do? Uh, he and his whole family head down to Egypt. Genesis 46 verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And so the question at the beginning here is, is Jacob doing the right thing? Is he doing what is right by leaving the land that God had promised them? When Abraham first entered the land of Canaan, God appeared to him and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. And in response, Abraham built there an altar to the Lord. And when Isaac was at Beersheba, God appeared to him at night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father, fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And what does Isaac do in response? He builds an altar there to the Lord. Jacob is uneasy, rightfully so, about leaving the promised land. So what does he do? He stops at the border and he offers sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And that night, God appears to Jacob in a vision, and it must have been an important message, because God calls Jacob by name twice. Jacob, Jacob, which, in case you're wondering, doesn't happen all that often in Scripture. In fact, we've only seen it happen uh, one other time in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 22, you may remember just before Abraham was about to bring the knife down on his son Isaac, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven saying, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Verses 2 to 4, God says to Jacob, 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 I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid 
to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Notice here that God knows Jacob's fears. There are all kinds of questions swirling around in Jacob's mind about what will happen to God's promises of land, offspring, and blessing. But God says to him, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. And God gives Jacob four reasons why he need not be afraid to go down to Egypt. First, do not be afraid For there I will make you into a great nation. For there I will make you into a great nation. Uh, God has promised several times uh, that we've, we've looked at that he will make this family into a great nation. But this is the first time that God promises to make them into a great nation while they are outside of the promised land. Jacob and his family will become a great nation Not here, but there in Egypt. As one commentator put it, uh, Egypt will become the womb of this great nation. Therefore, Jacob need not fear. Secondly, do not be afraid, for I myself will go down with you to Egypt. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. This recalls uh, Jacob's dream. Remember, I have a ladder extending between heaven and earth with angels ascending and descending on it. And God's promise to Jacob in Genesis 28, verse 15, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And here we see That our God is not bound to certain places, certain locales. He is not some localized deity. No, our God is the king of the universe. He has gone with Abraham and Sarah from Haran to Canaan. He's gone with Jacob. From Canaan to his uncle Laban and Haran and back to Canaan. Right? Our God is not hindered by borders. He has been with them thus far and he will continue to be with them even in Egypt. Therefore, Jacob need not fear. Thirdly, do not be afraid for I will also bring you up again. I will also bring you up again. There there is a connection here. Maybe you caught it. Maybe you didn't. There's a connection here between this promise of Exodus, because it is a promise of Exodus. You'll go down, but you also come up. This promise of Exodus and God's earlier prophecy about the Exodus in his covenant with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 to 14, God said to Abraham, no, for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As reader of this story, we know that Israel will eventually be enslaved in Egypt. This going down to Egypt will eventually be a going down into slavery. But God is working out his redemptive plan, even through their suffering, just as God sent Joseph to Egypt as a slave in order to save Israel from famine. So also God is bringing Israel to Egypt where they will be enslaved only to one day bring them up out of slavery and into the promised land once again. Therefore, Jacob need not fear. 
And then fourthly, do not be afraid, for Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Jacob will see Joseph again. No, Jacob will die in Egypt. He will die in the presence of his favorite son. Therefore, Jacob need not fear. Encouraged by God's promise, Jacob leaves the promised land and does indeed go down to Egypt. Verses 5 to 7. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba, the sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Jacob took along all his offspring. Not one remained behind in the promised land. He vacates the promised land entirely. And to underscore this point, uh, Moses lists all the names of Jacob's descendants. And for your benefit and for mine, I won't repeat all of their names again. But just like the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10, there are 70 persons in all. Verse 27, all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Now, of course, 70, you may, you may know, uh, is a significant number in Scripture. Uh, 70 is, is 10 times 7, 10 being uh, the number of fullness, completion, uh, and 7 being uh, the number of perfection. Thus, 70 is a full and complete number of God's people. All of God's people, in other words, go down to Egypt. In verse 28, it says that uh, Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. After 22 years, father and son have an emotional reunion. Uh, at this, jo Jacob says to Joseph, Now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Uh, Jacob has often spoken of death uh, since losing Joseph back in, in Genesis chapter 37. But here, here Jacob speaks of death with such sweet hope. In many ways, uh, Jacob's words parallel those of Simeon in Luke chapter 2, who takes the baby Jesus in his arms in the temple and says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You can die knowing that he has seen his salvation. But there's still the, the question in our text of, of, of what Pharaoh will do with this large family. I mean, that's a large family to put somewhere. Will he still allow them to settle in the best of the land that he promised him in the previous chapter? Joseph has a plan for that. And he goes over it with his family. In verses 31 to 34, he says, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, I will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me and the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say your, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And so now we see why the Egyptians didn't eat with the Hebrew brothers in the previous chapters. 
Shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. Uh, Joseph wants his family, though, to settle in the land of Goshen on Egypt's northern border, uh, which had ideal grazing land and which was still relatively close to Canaan. Joseph is going to emphasize to Pharaoh that uh, his family are, are shepherds and that they have brought their flocks and their herds with them. And since shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians, the hope is that Pharaoh will give them pasture land on the outskirts of Egypt. Yeah, yes, you can come to Egypt, but we're going to put you on the, on the outskirts so that you're far away from us. The brothers, in turn, they'll tell Pharaoh that they have been shepherds all their lives. And so with this plan in place, Joseph selects five of his brothers to go with him to Pharaoh. And in Genesis chapter 47, verse 1, Joseph says to Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. And guess where they're staying? They're staying in the land of Goshen. Then Joseph presents his brothers to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh asks them in verse 3, What is your occupation? Well, they know the answer to this. They reply, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Things seem to be going well. But then the brothers, they deviate from what they rehearse. They make a bold request. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Now, Pharaoh is not obligated in the slightest to accept their request and let them settle in the land of Goshen. He could send them back to Canaan or he could place them in one of the cities in Egypt. But amazingly, Pharaoh does oblige their request. In verse 5, he says to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. So he still is living up to what he had said previously. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. Now, if that's where Pharaoh had ended, it would already have been quite quite generous. But Pharaoh continues, and if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. And, and so uh, Pharaoh not only allows them to settle in Goshen, but he offers them a job. Joseph may put qualified men in charge of the royal herd. Uh, one commentator writes, uh, this office is mentioned frequently in Egyptian inscriptions since the king possessed vast herds of cattle. Ramses III is said to have employed 3,264 men, mostly foreigners, to take care of his herds. The appointment of some of Joseph's brothers to supervise the king's cattle means that they are to be officers of the crown and thus will enjoy legal protection not usually accorded aliens. So just as God prospered Joseph in, in Potiphar's house and in prison and in Pharaoh's court, so also God is prospering Jacob and his family in Egypt already, and they just got there. Uh, next, Joseph presents his father Jacob to Pharaoh, and, and Jacob does something rather strange. Verse 7 says that uh, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And, and you may remember, Jacob is the one who lied and cheated in order to obtain his father's blessing. And yet here, here Jacob generously passes on God's blessing to Pharaoh, this pagan leader. And he does this not once, but twice. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because it's a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Where God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All right, so in Joseph and in Jacob, the promise to, to Abraham was being fulfilled with the nations around them. They were being a blessing to the nations. Uh, Pharaoh asked Jacob in, in verse 8, 
uh, how many are the days of the years of your life? Jacob replies, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. That's kind of an interesting response to a rather simple question, right? Pharaoh asks, how old are you? And, and Jacob could have easily said, I'm 130 years old. But no, Jacob doesn't speak of his age in this way. Instead, he speaks of his age in terms of his sojourning. In terms of his sojourning. But, but this, this really has been the life of the patriarchs, has it not? He, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 9 to 10 says, By faith Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And so we see that sojourning characterizes the people of God. Sojourning characterizes the people of God. It's why the Apostle Peter refers to followers of Jesus as sojourner, sojourners and exiles. And it's why the Apostle Paul reminds us in, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, that our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so just as the, the patriarchs lived with the hope that, that one day God's promise of land would be fulfilled, so also we today live with the hope that one day God's promise of the new heaven and the new earth is going to be fulfilled. Right now, it's not, it's not without struggle, right? Jacob classifies his earthly sojourn as what? As evil. I don't know what your translations say. Uh, few and evil is what my, my translation says, right? And, and, and it's being a struggle for him, right? He cheated his brother Esau and deceived his father Isaac. As a result, he had to flee for his life to his uncle Laban, who deceived him by giving him on his wedding night, not the lovely Rachel, but the homely Leah. Then coming back to Canaan, his daughter Dinah was raped, and his sons deceived him into thinking that uh, his beloved Joseph had been torn apart by wild animals. Right? Then there was the famine. Then there was the, the imprisonment of Simeon in Egypt and his fear for Benjamin's life. Right, so, so Jacob's life, and you might say, well, it's just a result of his, his, uh, his own circumstances. Right, He did this to himself. But it's been hard. Jacob's life has been hard. But guess what? He had God's promise always in view. He had God's promise in view. Right? God would be with him even in Egypt. And, and eventually... God will return these sojourners to the land of promise, and they will dwell in the promised land. But, but for now, right, their lives, the lives of the patriarchs, and, and our lives are, are really one of sojourning. Right? This world is not my home. I'm only passing through, right? That's what we often say. Their lives, our lives are one of sojourn. Uh, in verse 11, uh, we read that Joseph settled his, his father and his brothers and, and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of, of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And so the brothers, they, they were content to, to sojourn in the land, but Joseph, at Pharaoh's command, gives them a possession of the land of, of Egypt. The sojourners now have property where they can settle down, they can multiply, they can become a great nation. And in addition to providing his family with property, verse 12 tells us that Pharaoh provides his family with food. Well, that's good. 
Everyone now has enough to eat. Not one of God's people will die of starvation. And this is especially remarkable, considering that, uh, according to verse 13, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. So had Israel remained in, in Canaan, they almost certainly would have starved to death. right? Even in Egypt, things are becoming desperate, and, and Joseph has to, to take measures to save the Egyptians. Look, look with me at at uh, verses 14 to 21. <clears throat> it says, and Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt, in the land of Canaan, in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock, if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Now, we, we may bristle at, at what takes place here because it sounds like Joseph is exploiting the poor and the needy in, in Egypt. Uh, at first glance, it, it looks as though Joseph takes their money, then he takes their land, and then he takes their freedom. But in the ancient world, this kind of thing was normal, right? Even in, uh, even in Israelite law, in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 25, it states, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, sounds very much like what's happening here, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. So there's this aspect of uh, uh, selling your property and then the opportunity to, to redeem it back. And so, in, in essence, the, the Egyptians are, uh, they become what is called tenant farmers on land that now belong to Pharaoh. In, in verse 23, uh, Joseph says to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. Right, so uh, since the people were now tenant farmers, Joseph would provide them with seed for planting the fields, and they would eventually be able to harvest said fields. And, and under this agreement, they would pay 20% of their crop to Pharaoh. Now, we might look at that and think, that's outrageous, right? I mean, can you imagine paying 20% of your crop to, you know where I'm going with this, Justin Trudeau, right? But according to one commentator, okay, here's, here's where it gets good. According to one commentator, uh, texts from the ancient Middle East attest that the interest rate for seed was often much higher, many times 40% 
even 60%. According to ancient standards, Joseph thus acted generously and graciously toward the people. He stressed that the rest of the crop, that is 80%, was theirs for seed and for food. And, and so we see that, that, yes, they would give 20% of the harvest to Pharaoh, but they also kept 80% of the harvest for themselves. And, and the Egyptians, they're, they're evidently grateful for this arrangement. They say in verse 25, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. Right? So remember, they came to Joseph with this idea of servitude, not the other way around. Right? It was their idea, not Joseph's idea. And apparently Joseph's reforms were acceptable to later Egyptians as well, because verse 26 says that Joseph's decree stands to this day. That's the, the day that Moses is uh, writing down this story for the people of Israel. And so earlier, right, Joseph, he, he explained to his brothers that uh, about God's providential leading, right? You sold me here, but then uh, God sent me before you to preserve life, right? And, uh, and Joseph uh, was, was talking about, I think in, in that moment, his family, but this applies not only to his family, but also to the Egyptians, preserving both, not just the lives of Israel, but also the lives of the Egyptians. And so this is clearly a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But then, you take it a step further, this saving of lives is not just a fulfillment of past promises, although that is the case, but in keeping alive the nation of Israel, Joseph is pointing forward to the future fulfillment of the saving work of who? Jesus! Right? Just as Joseph provided food for the starving people of Egypt to save their lives, so also Jesus promises food for dying people. Right? In John chapter 6, verses 35 to, 40, 50, yeah, 35 to 40, what does Jesus say? He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Right? And then, just as Joseph granted a possession in Egypt to God's people, so also Jesus grants a possession in God's kingdom to God's people. Speaking of the final judgment, Jesus says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Matthew 25, verse 34. Right? To the elect exiles of the dispersion, the Apostle Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5. Right, so, so just as Joseph provided a possession in Egypt to God's people, so also Jesus provided provides a possession in God's kingdom to God's people. And, and then uh, just as Joseph saved God's people from starvation, so also Jesus saves God's people from sin and damnation, and he gives them eternal life. Right, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life life. And so again, we're seeing these parallels between Joseph and, and Jesus, uh, where Joseph foreshadows Jesus. He's pointing forward to, to Jesus coming in and, and perfectly fulfilling what, what Joseph is doing here. Uh, Moses sums up um, Israel's stay in the land of Egypt in verse 27. He says, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Right, so God is fulfilling his promise of offspring to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. 
In Genesis chapter 35, verse 11, after God changed Jacob's name to Israel, God said to Jacob, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. Genesis 35, verse 11. And here in Egypt, Israel is becoming that great nation because God is with them. The, the narrative concludes uh, 17 years later with Jacob's request to be buried, not in Egypt, but where? In the promised land. In verse 29, Jacob says to Joseph, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And that's in the, the cave of Machpelah that Abraham bought for his wife, Sarah. And Joseph replies, I will do as you have said. Right, But, but Jacob's burial in the promised land is so important to Jacob that he makes Joseph swear an oath. In verse 31, uh, he says, swear to me. And Joseph swears to him. And then it says that Israel bowed himself upon the head of his Bed. We, we see that. that Jacob, he is so committed to the promised land. Though, though he has spent the last 17 years in Goshen, he has not forgotten God's promise of, of land. And he will not let the attractions of Egypt, because certainly there would have been plenty of attractions in Goshen. It was the best of the land, right? It was the fatness of the land. He's not about to let the attractions of Egypt turn him away from the promise of land that God had given him, right? He will not be seduced into Egypt. He will be in Egypt, but he will not be of Egypt. Right? Just, just as we often say, we'll be in the world, but we will not be of the world. God had promised not only to go down to Egypt with Israel, but also to bring them up again. Their, their final destination is not Egypt. It's in the land that God had promised them. And so we see that God is with them, not only in the present, but he's also with them in the future. God is with them not only in Egypt, but he's with them centuries later when they come up out of Egypt, then they return to Canaan. Jacob believes this promise. He knows that there is, there is no permanent residency in Egypt for the people of God. As one commentator put it, and I love this, Egypt is to Jacob and his family what the ark was to Noah, a temporary shelter from the disaster on the outside. Right. So just as Noah and his family, they didn't stay in the ark. That wasn't their permanent residency. So also Egypt, where, where they were going to receive protection, is not their permanent residency. It's in the land of Canaan. And thus the point of our text is that God's presence is with his people wherever they go. God's presence is with his people wherever they go. Just as God was present with Israel when they went down into Egypt and when he brought them up again, so also God is present with every believer in Jesus wherever we go. After his resurrection from the dead, Jesus sent out his followers to uh, make disciples of all nations. But, but Jesus doesn't send his followers out in their own power and ability. No, as Jesus is sending them out to the nations, what does he say? He says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew 28, verse 20. Jesus Christ, the one to whom God gave all authority in heaven and on earth, is with us wherever we go. That should astonish us right off the bat. That Jesus is with us wherever we go. That God is with us wherever we go. Right? Now, just because God is with us wherever we go, it does not mean that we will always prosper. Right? God's presence with Jacob didn't mean the end of hardship. 
God's presence with the nation of Israel didn't prevent them from affliction under a Pharaoh that did not know Joseph. But God was with them, even in their suffering. And the same is true with us today. And just because Jesus promises his disciples that he will always be with them, it does not mean that, that we will avoid hardship and suffering. I mean, look at the followers of Jesus in the New Testament. Right? Right off the bat, in the book of Acts, Jesus ascends to heaven. Stephen is stoned to death. Right? James is martyred. Peter is killed. Uh, Paul suffered beatings, imprisonments, and he's eventually martyred as well. Right? In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. Right? So the question is, if God's presence with us includes hardship, then what's the point? What's the point? And the apostle Paul, who experienced more afflictions than most of us, answers this question for us in Romans chapter 8. And Romans chapter 8 is one of the most beautiful chapters. I'm not, I'm not going to say it's, it's my favorite or, or anything like that. But it, if you go and read through all of, of Romans chapter 8, it encompasses so much richness in the Christian life. And he answers this, this question in, in three ways. Uh, first, in Romans chapter 8, verses, verse 18, Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. And so in other words, first, right off the bat, our present suffering will ultimately come to an end. Right? This present hardship and suffering is not our permanent residency. Our permanent residency is where? In the new heavens and the new earth where all things are fully and finally restored, including our frail bodies. Right? No sickness, no pain, no tears, no death, no bombs, no war, nothing. It's, it's gone. All things are fully and finally restored right off the bat. That comes to us. Secondly, in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30, Paul writes, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. For those whom he foreknew, okay, so you're talking, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. All right, so foreknew, predestined, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. You know what this is called? It's called the golden chain of salvation, where each link is connected to the other in such a way as to form an unbreakable chain that ought to encourage the believer, right? Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified, which means that nothing can break this chain. It doesn't matter how much we suffer in this life, those whom God has foreknown will be glorified. We can be sure of that. Final salvation is assured for the believer in Jesus. Right? But then, lastly, Paul takes it one step further. He draws our attention to Christ who is present with us in our suffering. Romans 8, verses 35 to 38, he writes, Who shall separate us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Any of that? No. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, right? And he goes on, neither this, neither this, neither this, neither this, nothing. In all creation, we'll be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How uplifting is that to our weak and weary souls? 
We, we may often doubt God's presence with us wherever we go. Right? And this doubt, it, it may come because we, we think that, that God is, is too small, uh, too distant, too uncaring to, to possibly be with us in our suffering. But, but if there is one thing our text this morning teaches us, it is that our God will go with us wherever we go, just as he has promised. So whatever we are facing, whatever hardship, whatever suffering, or whatever is going on in our world, right, may we be encouraged by the reality that our God goes with us wherever we go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for what it teaches us about your care for your children. Uh, if there's anyone here who does not yet know you, uh, who does not yet know your for knowing that leads to glorification, who does not yet know the, the peace of your presence, we, we pray that your Holy Spirit would make alive their dead hearts, that they may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible they may, obtain, they may attain to the, to the resurrection from the dead. And for those here who are right now doubting your, your presence with them in their suffering, or, or if there is a time in the future where, where they will question your presence with them in their suffering, we pray that, that you would make known to them Jesus, who said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God, we pray this for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.